Oh, so, hello. Um, who am I talking to? My name is Shahrazad. Um, should I give you a full introduction? With yeah, go for that? it if you want. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so my name is Shahrazad. I'm a psychologist and a writer. And I think that's pretty much my introduction. Anything more than that I feel really embarrassed about. Um, and I'm really sleepy because I'm in India and I've just woken up. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. I just recorded one this morning and I got out of bed and just started recording. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> so thank you for doing this. It's not the best feeling. It's just a, I'm sorry. It's just a really odd time because this is the festival season. So there are a lot of public processions that take place. And that essentially means that there are a lot, there's a lot of noise late into the night. So we get to sleep very late. And that's why I'm a little groggy. Yeah, you might hear some background noise on my end because there's some mariachi bands playing in the neighborhood right now. <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing here. I mean, other than the fact that there's local music. Because everything in India, in terms of festivals particularly, um, happens on the street. So, And this is a public festival almost because it lasts about nine to ten days. And nothing exists solitarily so any festival has a lot of aftershocks essentially so it keeps going on for days yeah and you're in mumbai right now right i'm in bombay yes i am right now yeah and if i'm one of the poems you sent me from um uh, namdeo Dasal, i think was um, what was about a neighborhood in Bom in bombay if yeah, i'm not mistaken it is um it is referred to as the red light district um and it's essentially a place where historically um, most of Bombay's sex workers um, are are placed. Um, it's a it's a very difficult thing to describe in in some ways because it is also responsible for a lot of um, trafficking, human trafficking, sex uh, sex trafficking. But at the same time, it's also in an ironic way, a very important part of Bombay's history and its lineage. And um, the poem is particularly important because poetry in India historically has sort of stayed away from speaking about certain issues. And Namdev Dasar, who, is, um, who was essentially a very rebellious figure in Indian poetry, wrote about issues, aspects of our culture, particularly minoritized communities, particularly marginalized people. So that's what the poem is about, because that's essentially what you wouldn't see in poetry in India otherwise. Um, and so I, it's one of the more important poems for me growing up, because when I, when I was growing up, my exposure to, to poetry, particularly English poetry, was very sanitized, very clinical, very beige. And when I discovered him particularly, um, along with a couple of other people, it was somewhat liberating because they were talking about things around us that were not as clean, that were not as <clears throat> black and white, or that were simply not as sanitized as what we were accustomed to in our curriculum otherwise. Yeah, and I was, I was reading a, a bit about him, and, you know, he's, as I'm sure you know, he's a member of, you know, the Deletes, and, you know, yes. I, it does seem like having, you know, I've, browsed a few anthologies of Indian poetry over the years, and it does mm -hmm. seem like Dalit poets are, tend to be the exception. Uh, 
there's mm-hmm. it's it's hard to find poetry by by folks by folks from that that cast because we have oppressed um as a country we have oppressed um dalits and we have oppressed people from what are referred to as scheduled castes scheduled tribes we have a history of oppressing people based on caste systems and casteism which continues till this date and so he was a member of the dalit panthers and their voices have been suppressed um even historically because sanskrit used to be the language of communication not communication uh, that's incorrect but essentially language of literature and sanskrit was very prohibitive in one sense and it was restricted uh, to certain castes certain classes and people who didn't belong to those classes and people who were marginalized or minoritized were not allowed access to education or were not even allowed to speak the language and so there was a lot of oppression and so people had to find their own ways um to express themselves and claim reclaim their identity and with uh, particularly with the dalit community in india politically socioculturally linguistically we do see oppression that continues today um and he was an activist and i think for a lot of people who who are a part of the dalit arts and literature movement it's impossible not to not to be a political activist as well because you have to be able to speak first you know historically that's a community that was fined and punished and tortured for even speaking in sanskrit at one point in time so you won't see a lot of work uh, because even till date mainstream indian publishing is a very um casteist and a very classiest environment where the people who hold significant editorial positions um you know are very particular about what they publish and what they can fetishize or romanticize or objectify to some extent but it's not inclusive largely yeah so you're kind of saying even when they uh dalit literature does get published it it tends to maybe perhaps fall fall into certain categories that uh the publishing mm-hmm. industry in India sees fit mm-hmm. to publish, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the other things too that I think we wanted to talk about was um he was uh writing in Marathi and he was writing in the vernacular. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, mm-hmm. one of the things you were interested in talking about was the history of, you know, sort of vernacular literature in India and how mm-hmm. that relates to mm-hmm. um the oppression of you mm-hmm. know, of uh the historical oppressions mm-hmm. that folks like him have faced mm-hmm. so so you know who so like what other like i guess vernacular poets do you, do you look to in india that are fulfilling a similar kind of role that are that are that are fighting back in that way there are a lot of people today um who are writing in vernacular uh languages there is a lot of vernacular literature that's produced in eastern parts of the country in the southern part of the country he wrote in marathi primarily because like i said you know sanskrit was the language of literature for a very long time but because of abject casteism and classism a lot of people were not allowed access to sanskrit people were prohibited from speaking it they were punished and there were religious texts there are aspects of you know brahmanic texts which encouraged the idea of punishing people from a certain caste or a certain section of the society who speak the language so it became important for um 
you know, people to create vernacular literature because that's how they could speak to other people within the same community. And that was also a form of rebellion against just the influence of uh, primary languages and particularly of, of Sanskrit. So there are a lot of people who are doing great work in Urdu or uh, Bengali or other vernacular literature. There are a lot of tribal poets as well. There are a lot of Hindi poets who are writing. Um, the only problem is that there is no institutional support. So when, if, when you look at America, even though right now I would assume with the current ad administration you have, um, it is pretty harsh, but at least you have some structures in place to support arts, literature, you know, assorted things. But we don't really have that. So there are no grants, there are no residencies. And even if they are, they're very few and far, and far in between. And the people who are writing are essentially writing in small pockets and corners. Um, one of the most tragic things I ever encountered was last year I was at um, at a poetry reading and I was talking to someone who is a very prolific writer and who was talking about a vernacular literature festival in West, in West Bengal. And this person said that, you know, when we're done with the two or three days of the festival, it's a small thing, it's a small collection of people. He said, when we're done with this, you know, we'll, do, we'll make a huge bonfire and we'll burn whatever is left of the books or the chapbooks or the stapled together collections because we know that no one is going to buy this or no one is going to be interested and just keeping it in my house is very painful for me emotionally. So that's the state of vernacular, of vernacular literature in India right now. Yeah, and I mean, one uh, of the other... No, go on. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's about it. Oh, sorry, what were you saying? I just said that's about it. So it, it was pretty tragic because I've heard, I've heard this a lot. Um, it's very ironic because one of the biggest literary prizes... Not prizes, I'm sorry. One of the biggest literary festivals in the world is, is supposed to be... Uh, an Indian festival in that sense, though it's not because it's headed by a white man who likes to fetishize India. But um, one of the most ironic things that happened in it was that they had so-called POC poetry and they brought in POC poets or POC identified poets from America, no fault of theirs, but they absolutely had no one vernacular from India as a participant in that festival. There was very little spotlight shed on vernacular writing in India. And it's so, sort of ironic because we're talking about a country where everyone is a person of color. Everything that's being produced is POC literature. And to export um, POC writers from America and poets from America, it's just a bit ironic when there are people who publish in vernacular languages here who couldn't even afford the past of the festival. Yeah, that definitely sounds pretty familiar. Um, but I wanted to talk too about like some of the conditions that these vernacular poets are writing in. Um, and you know what struck me about you saying that um, so after that festival in, in Bengal, they they burned the leftover chapbooks because you know they it was an alienating experience and no one was going to buy them. You know, it reminded me mm -hmm. of um, the Assamese. Uh, vernacular poets mm -hmm. that you talked about in your mm -hmm. Queen's Mobs mm -hmm. essay mm -hmm. and you know th that their poetry was just on a basically in a Facebook thread 
and yeah it seems like you know these these are folks who are literally losing their citizenship to the modi government and you know th- that's i think a general experience for a lot of these like more leftist marginalized poets in india whether it's you know mm-hmm. in the assam or maybe the naxalites mm-hmm. in central india mm-hmm. or, or again in like the the poet we began talking about in, Bom- in bombay mm-hmm. so like you know do you see do you see that kind of poetry like taking do you see a space for it opening up online at all or i think right now it is mostly digital because there is space available digitally for people to at least communicate engage and participate in collective action which is very important in india has a history of protest poetry and political poetry um right from the time that we were colonized and even from before that so the reason you won't see for instance the poets that you're talking about the mia poets from assam and it has happened people have lost their citizenships because the nrc was institutionalized um a, a few days ago a few weeks i think a week ago or so and those so people have to interrupt, those are um like basically councils to determine if those folks are actually citizens or not and you know by determine we mean well, remove yeah expel mm-hmm. their them their citizenship and their yeah Sorry, just so we actually are using the uh, well. Actually, it's it's a list that they're releasing of people who are supposed to qualify for citizenship in Assam, and it's ironically um, an American model because they're they're going to create detention camps for people who don't um, whose names don't appear on the list or whose names or who are not qualified as per the lists. And the, the list is very arbitrary. At this point in time, if I were to look at the qualifiers for that particular list, it's called the National Registry of Citizenship. Um, it's, it's a very vile combination of almost um, fascistic, not almost, it is fascistic um, ideology. And it follows the American detention camp formula right now, because people who are not going to qualify for the list are going to essentially be put in detention camps. They are, you know, citizens of no man's land, essentially. And the thing is that if you look at the qualifiers for that particular list, at this point in time, as someone who is um, half Indian, half, you know, many elsewhere as part of my lineage, I wouldn't qualify for it either. I'm assuming so. There are a lot of people who have lived in this country whose families have lived here for centuries who don't qualify for that particular list because of how arbitrary the criteria is and how much of it is just so difficult to prove. It is very difficult to prove. You know, you don't just have to prove your citizenship. You have to prove generational citizenship. So that's exactly what has happened, what they were talking about. And that's the thing with poetry, that poetry informs us in a, in a very prophetic way at times, and sometimes in ominous ways, of what is to come. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah, and just to underscore too, like I was reading about the, the list that they were, they were putting out, and basically, you know, to mm-hmm. say how un- arbitrary they were, they were uh, the reporting I was reading mm-hmm. was saying, like, you know, they... Uh, mm-hmm. You, you could have one family member on the list and one family member who isn't. And then, you know, you have to go through that yes. arduous process of trying to, trying to prove citizenship. And, you know, some of these folks maybe mm. don't have paper, like they might have lived there for, you know, decades, but you know, the, like, you know, mm. it, it reminded me in some ways of the, 
the Windrush generation in, in Britain. I've mentioned this on an episode with Trent. You know, again, this is the, the sort of fascist policy you see from in both Britain and Australia is sort of the idea, like the Windrush generation of, you mm-hmm. know, the government lost their papers and then they're saying, well, mm-hmm. if you can't prove you are here, then we're going to deport you back to back to the Caribbean. Right. And, and you see this being replicated across the globe because just the way we, you know, here in India, the Indian government um, essentially pulled a, a, te- a technology kill switch on Kashmir where we, we have no contact with them. We barely have any contact with them now, but for a period of approximately 20 days, we essentially created an open air prison in Kashmir. And now you see the same thing being replicated in Bangladesh, where the parts of Bangladesh which have Rohingya populations, the government has instituted a similar kill switch when it comes to mobile phone connections and just any kind of telecom communication, any kind of telecom connection or communication. So that's the challenge with the rise of right wing across the globe that people pick from each other and then they sort of in a very unfortunate way create the perfect cocktail of fascistic torturing policies and that's what's happening here in south asia now you see it replicated across the indian subcontinent across the south asian subcontinent and in that space it becomes more and more important to give space um, to people who are writers who are poets, artists, because even in Kashmir, that's what's happening right now. The writers, the journalists, you know, academics, they're the ones who are being disappeared. They're the ones who are being placed under house arrest. They're just vanishing in thin air. So that's the state of where we are today. When we talk about leftist, communist ethos, and just generally the conversation around that, I think I've mentioned this before, that it irks me when when I hear Americans talk about it in a hypothetical sense, because it's not hypothetical, it's happening. The people who are putting their lives on the line right now for those very ideas, and in most cases, those are non-white, non-mainlander, you know, people of color, as much as I hate that description, because I think it's not a monolith, but that's who, who is putting their lives on the line, in Hong Kong for that matter. So I think it's not that hypothetical. I think there's more to it than just showing up on Twitter and getting into fights about, you know, American institutions or sort of personal vendetta at times that I see in so the so-called poetry, whatever, poetry community online. Because it's mostly Americans, it's American voices. Any other voice is suppressed by either group, you know. All of this is happening. Like how many people internationally um, within the international literary community, are talking about the people who have disappeared from Kashmir, writers, poets, academics, who have just disappeared. For that matter, people who disappeared from Sudan, or people who have disappeared from Hong Kong and China. You know, There is a constant usurping of space, and it's almost imperialistic in some ways, because it always is more magnified when we want to talk about ex-poet wrote this, and this is why it's so terrible. Fair enough, we should critique, question all of those things. But I think as much energy should be expended in discussing and highlighting, supporting, learning and educating oneself about what's happening in other parts of the world. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And something that I think like, you know, the essay to return to your essay in, in Queen Mobs was, um, you know, you, you use the phrase open air prison to describe 
the situation, this current situation in Kashmir since um, the Modi government basically locked it down. And, you know, you in your essay, you quote um, the end in lines for from uh, Darwisha's poem mm -hmm. ID card. And, you know, that the you know, the, when you use the phrase open air prison, it reminds me you know, of the situation in, in Palestine mm -hmm. and the situation, the apartheid situation there. And you're right, like there, there is a total, like the things that I think are often speculated about in American poetry are realities in most of the world, frankly, even in, even within Europe with, with um, the refugee crisis that's been occurring for, you know, the past decade almost. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, and, you know, there's not, yeah, no, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say that a lot of times, I'm not so sure how long it will last given your current government, but a lot of times, a lot of times when people like me talking to you right now, this endangers me on some level because we do have people today, um, and I mentioned this to you over texts that Varavara, right? He's an academic. He's a Marxist. He's a poet. The state has been hounding him and hunting him essentially for years now, just for having certain books. This has just happened, I think, a week ago or so, where a judge asked. Um, one of the people who they have essentially created a massive, massively false case against, all of them academics, all of them Marxists, about what kind of books they had on their bookshelves. That's the kind of case that they're building against people. So what, what is important is that people who are in safer parts of the world, to whatever extent that they're safe, should speak about it. Because people who are in these parts, they're risking their lives to talk about these situations. You know? Anybody who's speaking about Kashmir today, particularly if they're Kashmiri, are risking their lives. We're in a country where anything can be considered sedition today. A Facebook post, um, a tweet, anything of the sort. So for me, what really matters today is that as much as I appreciate Americans discussing Poetry Foundation and the issues with it, which I'm sure are very, very important, um, on several levels, I think as much energy has to also be expended to go beyond the zip code and beyond the country-specific politics, and to understand that if you truly believe in a in a communist ideology, then you have to go beyond your specific version of poetry land or whatever the hell's supposed to be, and talk about someone like Behrouz Bashani, for instance, you know, Stella Nyanzi, for instance, people who are being held under completely false pretenses and um, their futures are unpredictable because you see that a lot of poetry magazines and a lot of editorial submission calls and, and the sort um, love to ask for very trauma-centered literature and submissions but there are people who have spoken up about it and they haven't benefited from being heard. What has happened is that when they've spoken about it, that has been used as evidence against them. So how are the people in America's mainstream publishing or even alternative venues of publishing safeguarding the people that are talking, talking about these things? Um, that's really the question. Because I see a lot more energy directed towards individual vengeance and grief and disagreements. Well, I am currently looking at friends in Hong Kong who have gone into hiding because the state is going to hunt them. Friends of mine who have disappeared in Kashmir, we have no contact with. 
for me, it's a dissonance that exists there because then I go online and I see the, the, the Twitter literary community spending a lot of time debating why this person used this term in this poem. What does that mean? But these catastrophic ongoings in elsewhere in the world are completely either erased or ignored. So it's, um, it feels like double marginalization. You exist in a margin and you're sort of then put in a smaller margin within the margin. Right. I think um, something that's, there's a couple of things that make um, taught like an international perspective really hard in, in the United States is, you know, the, the lack of availability of information from the rest of the world, partially because of how hard getting translated stuff is into the United States. There's just the institutional support for it just doesn't exist. And when it does happen, it tends to be, you know, it tends to be poets who, you know, I was flipping through an anthology of Latin American poets the other day. And, you know, all the Latin American poets in that anthology, which had been translated, which was a anthology put out, I think originally in maybe Mexico or um, Brazil and the, the anthology was then translated into English and all the poets in that anthology themselves were probably, you know, seemed to be the vast majority anyway, were settler colonialists. You know, they were, they were descendants of white people from Europe. They were Italians, mm -hmm. et cetera, mm -hmm. and, uh, or Germans. And it's really, it's really hard oftentimes to get that information, you know, from oppressed people around the world though. Like, you know, I, certainly am invested in, in trying to do that to, to the extent possible. And I hope to do a full episode on Buchani next weekend with um, Trent, who's an Australian, who's in Australia. But um, like, you know, with, and again, like the, also with the frustrations with the Poetry Foundation for a lot of people, you know, like some of my friends in the poetry community here in the United States, like, you know, I know people who like literally live in the United States and like don't have hot water and like can't make rent. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating when you see these massive institutions that have all this money and just aren't spending, aren't, aren't giving it out because there's, it's, it's hard here when it is, there's difficulty here with, you know, for a lot of people and just like survival, you know, they know a lot of people who you know, can't make rent and it's, it's hard in that situation where you can't really trust the, the vast majority of information you're getting from the outside world, especially outside of America and, you know, you don't necessarily have time to sift through it all because, you know, you're, you're busy trying to make rent. But at but, the same uh, time, you know, no, I, the I, no, point I, is... No, go on. No, what I was saying is that that's the reality for most people here in this part of the world. For instance, when people say things like deport all um, fascists, where do you deport them to? Oh, I love that shirt. That's yeah, the that question. Was awful. You know, where, where, where are you going to deport the fascists to? To other parts of the world? Lesser parts of the world? places where people like me live. And that's pretty much the colonial mindset, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that, that's literally been... how parts of America and Australia were settled. Australia in particular. And the, the thing is that when people say these things, they don't think it through. So when there is a conversation that is initiated, as opposed to listening to it or engaging with it, to be immediately defensive and to possibly make allegations of jealousy and whatnot. That's not the point. See, for me, 
when you look at Poetry Foundation or, or anything of that size, I already distrust it. Because I am Romani, I am Indian, I'm Afghan. I don't trust institutions. Institutions have failed people like me for centuries. I completely understand the criticism against an institution like that, but the fact is that then people in America need to understand that they're not as different from people elsewhere. Something that a friend of mine in Nigeria said to me a couple of days ago, we were discussing the American political situation, and this friend said that it's very tragic what's happening in terms of the present government that you have, but at the same time, it's almost like an equalization process because America has been doing this to other countries for several years. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's the classic government. It's the classic um, argument that like Cesare makes and um, Malcolm X has made too. You know, this is it's a case of the chickens coming home to roost, and you know it's it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, I remember as a kid, like in two thousand three, two thousand four, watching you know the news and seeing uh, coverage of LRADs on Humvees, and you know if those are like um, those are those noise cannons that that the cops use, mm -hmm. and they originally developed mm -hmm. to you know shoot it you know shoot noise noise uh, all this you know that high frequency noise at to disperse crowds in iraq and now of course it's immediately less than like literally less than a decade it came back to america and mm -hmm. you know i i totally agree like you have in america especially you have to have that internationalist edge or else you're going to end up just constantly seeing that oppression return home no matter no matter what kind of policies you're pursuing no matter what kind of socialist or allegedly socialist policies you're trying to pursue zip code mentality it's that insulation that is very prevalent culturally in america but also i mean culturally and socially but it's, it also permeates into its literary spaces because how many times do you read magazines or even alternative spaces or alternate space or whatever you might call it publish people from other parts of the world that are over and above your standard group of people that you might be, might be familiar with, who are non-white, who are not American POC. Also, people of color is not a monolith, you know. number of times you will see South Asian um, literature or South Asian poetry, and all you see is second-generation Americans. These are things or these are elements of conversation that are completely erased. There was a point when I think there was this massive um, period of outrage Olympics about someone who had written something very negative, or some someone who's a who's a racist, is a poet, is a racist, an American. People were discussing it and had written something very negative about um, Islam, and there was not one single Muslim in that conversation from any side. That's that's the white savior complex that's problematic. Right, and I like with the, sorry, with the white savior complex. Like that's, again, that's like we see it in literature, or you see it in something like Coney twenty twelve, or something like that. And those, or you know, the poetry of Carolyn Forche, for instance, um, you see that kind of thinking. And it, even if, no matter how well intentioned it is, the the pretext for that is always going to come back to, you know, imperialism. It's always going to come back to U.S. intervention, whether it's military or, you know, sanctions. No, um, the thing is that there is something called social location, and there is privilege associated with social location. 
So like I was telling you earlier, there are people currently, if, if people are interested, they can Google Bhima Koregao case. There are people who've been arrested as part of this case and talking about it also endangers people where academics, writers, poets, essentially people who self-identify as Marxists um, and who've been Marxists for the last 40 years, who've been producing work in that space for a considerable amount of time, have all been arrested, right? Today in India particularly, or in certain other parts of South Asia, we don't have a social location. Perhaps with the regime you have right now, most of you might also lose it. But that does not take away from the fact that a fair amount of Americans have a social location privilege. And your social location does matter. And for, for when people don't recognize that, that's frustrating. Because a person of color from India is not the same as a person of color from elsewhere. You know, friends of mine, very close friends of mine, one of my closest friends um, lives in Nigeria. Very gifted, uh, phenomenal writer, poet, but pretty much has given up on writing or publishing because he can't find space to put his work out there because he doesn't check the boxes that need to be checked in so-called POC poetry that is published by mainstream American publishing spaces. So social location is something that people need to understand. When you look around, when I look around, right, I'm, I'm Romani on, on my father's side. If I look at Romani literature, it's pretty much absent. Literally, on ground, everywhere. And a lot of what you see today being used um, in detention camps as tactics and strategies, they're all, they were all essentially perfected on people, um, you know, on Romani people. We've never heard from them. They don't learn. And that's the challenge, that if you don't pass the mic, you won't learn. And eventually, the cascading effect will filter down to you and yours. And that's what's happening, you know. I think I generally don't trust major institutions because I, I was, I think, one of the first people, I think about three or four years ago, where I questioned the board of the, the National Book Awards in America, the people on its board. I mean, it's, all people have to do is just do a little bit of research on who's funding it, who's on the board. And even with festivals that people participate in, I mean, how, how does one in good conscience participate in a festival sponsored by, let's say, Bank of America at a time when people are protesting the pipeline, which has been, you know, in part being funded by Bank of America? I think so. It's questionable. I mean, it's a question of ethics, really. Yeah, like one of the things, like even just today, I was, you know, look, reading about... Um the in the catapult.co people and it, it i i finally realized that you know one of the people like the founder and main funder of it is um the daughter of the Koch brothers you know and they're mm -hmm. natural natural gas and oil extractive industries billionaires they're 
they've their reign of terror has um, is of global proportions, and I, you know I just don't see how people can publish with them or with, for instance, uh, Grey Wolf in Minnesota. Like they take money mm-hmm. from Wells Fargo, they take money from Target, and again, you know, Wells Fargo was building the Keystone XL pipeline or helping mm-hmm. to sort out the loans for it or however that relationship worked. And, you know, I, I, I agree these institutions, you, you can't trust them. And I tend to try and look at someone like say, uh, Jamie Barut's, um, pamphlet series where she's just trying on Patreon to get a run a, you know, run a zine series featuring, uh, trans writers from, you know, around the country and around the world, it seems that, and, you know, like you, we, we really can't trust any of these institutions and the the poets who continue to to run cover for them are you know i think doing a lot of harm because whether whether they're um, trying to like take money from them and at the same time sort of say well you know there's some bad but they could do better it's like Mm -hmm. they 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 can never do like the institutional incentives there they can never do better they're Mm -hmm. they're the only answer is you know alternatives that mm-hmm. are not mm-hmm. capitalist or are funded, you know, by, mm-hmm. by, 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 our, by us, by ourselves. There's not, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't see the possibility there of. Uh, it's pretty much the structure of vernacular literature in India. It's always been grassroots. It's always been people um, sitting in their garages and, you know, stapling pamphlets. There's always been the structure of um, vernacular publishing in India, which is why I think it's important for people to recognize there are people in other parts of the world who have been doing this for hundreds of years, and there's something to learn from that. When you look at um, institutional support, right, a lot of times I understand that people opt for it because, because when you come from adversity or when you come from a place where the scarcity mindset is very deeply ingrained, it, it's it's a form of conditioning that's hard to break. and that I say as a psychologist, because I understand the, the concept of ongoing traumatic stress disorder, right? For a lot of people who are marginalized, for me, um, you know, the parts of my past, my ancestry, which, is, which has been bombed to extinction. And a lot of times when I see submission calls, and I saw one, I think, a week or two ago, it's just mind-bogglingly insensitive because it it spelled out that they were looking for trauma send us your trauma that was a part of the submission call essentially a white masthead that wants trauma what ways will they safeguard that trauma right when you look at um major publishing um outlets i i am ambivalent because i also believe and this is part of the Romani, Romani mentality that I do believe that one, sh- one should shaft them of their money. I 100% believe, like, take it from them. Because that's also important. But I do feel that it's important to not uh, supply reverence to them, to not make statements about, oh, we're here because X or Y or Z um, has uplifted us. No. They haven't uplifted us. And the measure of acceptance, not tolerance, but acceptance of diverse, um, disruptive voices is surely 
you know, the, the variance and the scale. So if I'm saying that X or Y or Z outlet is very open to Romani poets, all I have to do is ask, how many Romani poets have they published? Because if they're publishing the same Romani poet over and over again, and this is an example, there is, there is no Romani poet as such, but if they're publishing the same person over and over again, that's textbook colonialism. That's the textbook, you're the insider. And I have, you know, um, erected you or embedded you as a bubble of sorts. And I'm polishing you. While I deny, like you said, there are people in, in America who don't have running water or don't have money for rent. And then I am giving away prizes to specific groups of people. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of a very gray area, but I do think that there has to be more engagement and conversation about it. Because it's, art in itself is very difficult, not art, but particularly poetry. I think art is sustainable if you are a famous artist, but poetry is, is not a sustainable way to make a living, at, at least not where I live, you know. And a lot of times you also see really terrible co-opting of like fashion magazine language, 10 poets who are in season, 10 poets who will change poetry forever. Never see anybody else who's from any other part of the world on, apart from people from Europe or America. And it almost feels like a terrible way to, to disappear an already disappearing population because there are people, for instance, there's, there's a man by the name of, um, um, I can't remember his name, he, um, Anuj Lukan, right? That's his name. And he's a tribal writer and a poet, and he won a very significant literary prize in India, um, where his poetry is primarily about what's happening to tri tribal people in India and how major corporations are, you know, um, usurping tribal land, fracking and things like that. So he's won this prize. It's, it's also interesting at a time where this is so prevalent in this country, but these are the people who are actually on the front line talking about things. This is the person I want to hear from more, you know, because at, at some point we do have to question about the, the insulation of someone in an MFA course somewhere claiming that they understand what it feels like on the ground. Not to take anything away from them, not to take anything away from the fact that, you know, those courses are important and academic life is important. But there has to be some space made for people who don't have access to that and who are still speaking truth to power. And they're doing so entirely on their own without any backing from anyone. Yeah, and to, like, to return to, I guess, the Indian context a little more too like you see you know i think it's it's rare to again it's rare to find these voices especially in america but you do see like there was the um book by uh, satnam about the about going to uh the going to visit the naxalites in you know it's in uh, central india and, you know, living, you know, um, not living among, but, you know, like living with the Maoist insurgency and the various tribal peoples of that area. And, you know, that kind of voice is like, I can think of maybe two or three times that that sort of thing has been covered to a large extent in American 
in Amer- like in the American press, which would have been again the original book I'm talking about by I think Satnam, mm-hmm. and then I think Arundhati Roy a few years later tried to do mm-hmm. it as well. And you know, like again, she has again she has a tremendous amount of social location yes, privilege she does. because she's safe. She's upper caste. She is very well entrenched in the publishing world. People will drop money to hear her speak. So she becomes again in a way a mainlander with interventionist policies or or, or strategies. So. I'm a little bit cautious about her significance because, again, the same challenge that when you position an Arundhati Roy, you know, central to everything, she takes up the space of ten other voices who are actually speaking from the front line. You yeah, know? and then she people don't feel like they have to wrote, go beyond her. Yeah, I mean, she kind of wrote the same book that someone else did ten years before, mm. which mm-hmm. uh, not 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 a great look, probably, but um. I, I guess what I was getting at is, you know, like, you know, the folks in the Naxalite struggle, they're, they're fighting the ex- same extractive industries that, you know, again, like the, that, mm-hmm. you know, like the Koch brothers are related to that are funding Catapult magazine mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you mm-hmm. know, you see, you mm-hmm. see these connections and it's like, I don't know, like, so what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, who are some like poets that you look to that, that are operating maybe outside of that sort of literary complex that Arundhati Roy might be a part of. Oh, sorry, did I cut out there? I didn't hear the last part. Oh, I was just saying, um, what are some, who are some poets that you think might be operating outside of the literary complex that like Arundhati Roy is a part of? There are lots of them. There are a lot of people writing in vernacular languages. Uh, someone that I, I know quite well, someone who actually left the city life and went back to a village, or not a village, but maybe a hamlet on steroids is um, is a boy by the name of and I'd really mean boy because he's very young and you'll hate me for saying that but is someone called Mihir Vatsa and he's essentially um, exploring echo poetics through something called as the Hazari Bagh project where you know he lives in an area which is um, very precarious because of coal mining and the same land grabbing. Um, endeavors of certain major corporations supported by the state. So he's he's essentially created a project to preserve the image. It's like a visual diary of sorts accompanied by poetry. Um, very talented, could have could have very easily gone on to do, you know, creative writing programs anywhere in the world. Um, has been a resident in Scotland for the Charles Wallace Grant as part of the Charles Wallace Grant. But he, left all of that to come back to do this project um, and teaches at the same time. So he, and he's published, so it's not that hard to find his work. He writes in English though. Um, so he's, he's sort of not impossible to locate. And I think a lot of times it's difficult to locate people because it's language imperialism. It's not hard for people to find obscure French writers because French is a haloed language. You know, it's a desirable language to learn. So. Therefore, people have a lot of translated literature in French. But you won't find that very easily with Urdu. Yes, the script is different, but also because there is a linguistic imperialism at work there as well. So Mihir is one of those people. There are quite a few Tamil writers, quite a few Dalit writers, poets. There's a huge list because if I start naming them, there will be, we'll never end this conversation. But um, I will be doing a thread on them on my Twitter. And there will be a column that I'm writing for the next installation of the Queen Mops um, column that I write 
about people whom they can treat. You know, um, Kamran Mir Haz, not Indian, Afghan, Hazara, Hazara poet, very, very important to know his work because he he's an academic and a scholar. He's based out of Europe right now, but writes in... Yeah, and the uh, Hazara would be a minority in Afghanistan that have been much persecuted. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's part of my lineage as well. Um, so I'm very particular about um, showcasing Hazara or Romani voices or Indian voices because, you know, those are, those are uh, fractals that compose me. So um, his voice is also important, you know. It's important to read people who come from those communities as opposed to reading someone's interpretation of those communities because a lot of times people's well-intentioned po poems or essays end up using people like me or our lives or our communities as plot devices, you know. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's Turkish, but Kurd, Kurdish, and she mentioned this to me. She lives in America, and she was talking about how she read a poet poem um, written by an Asian American who essentially ended up using Turk Turkish, not I'm sorry, not Turkish, Kurdish um, deaths as a plot device to prove how much of a progressive liberal she is. And I think it's important to hear from people from the communities themselves. And it is important to go beyond what's easily available because we do it all the time. We are always trying to understand certain things happening in America. I'm familiar with American poets. I'm familiar with contemporary and older American poets, writers. So sometimes it's also the political climate that's, you know, that determines these things. And I think now, if nothing else, at least Americans are, are understanding that they are pretty much on par with the rest of the world, not above it. Which is healthy because it allows them to then expose themselves to new ideas, to other cultures, you know. I do worry, though, that that sort of um, mentality amongst a lot of Americans, especially liberal Americans, will will disappear as soon as Trump gets out of office. I, I feel like there's a lot of folks. <laughs> That's a very hopeful statement, <laughs> if he gets out of office. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he could just be there till he dies of, you know, eating too much McDonald's in 30 years. <laughs> I'm not... Um, fingers crossed that it happens, but you know who knows what's actually going to happen. We could just have a Don Don Junior presidency too. Who knows? Exactly. Well, it's also the fact that I mean, in my experience, when I'm in America, it's surprisingly I feel safer in smaller communities than I've felt in a city which is renowned as a liberal city like Seattle, because there's a lot of cause shopping that happens. You know, whatever cause is influential and you know, is the flavor of the season becomes important. So we're trends. And I always say this, that when you engage with writers or poets uh, or activists, you're not caught, you shouldn't be cost shopping. You know, you shouldn't only be interested in Afghan literature because a bomb went off in Kabul. You know, you shouldn't only be yeah. interested in Indian literature because Slumdog Millionaire came out. very yeah. narrow lens yeah i not to interrupt but like 
especially like you need to do that work before something happens because oftentimes what I see is, you know, some act of terrorism or something like terrorism in quotes will, will occur at some part of the world. And then suddenly everyone's scrambling to try and find someone from that part of the world to talk to about it. You like, you need to have those relationships pre-existing in order to make sense of these events in a way that isn't actually furthering us imperialism. And, you know, I, I certainly am trying to, hopefully trying to do that kind of thing because if you like again if you don't have these relationships pre-existing you're just an easy mark for you know propaganda essentially it pivots very quickly because it goes from uh there was a bomb blast in kabul to how does this impact the american public give it a minute you know to understand how does it impact the afghan public it can't immediately become about americans and the american interest you know that's very important and i see that uh i see that sort of mindset you know pretty pervasive in publishing as well um find a person who is afghan who's available to write about this tragedy or find an indian person to write about this tragedy within india also there is caste privilege there is social location privilege there is gender privilege so asking some random indian person to write about a specific event doesn't make sense. No, no it, happened... I, not to interrupt, but, mm-hmm. but it really, it really doesn't. Like India's literally a billion people, and it's a mm-hmm. huge country. It's, you know, it's like the equivalent mm-hmm. of a bomb going off in New York City, and like getting someone from like Texas to write a column about it. Like, right. it makes it makes right. literally no sense. Right. Uh, sorry, sorry, go on. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to say that like, no, that no. really bugs me. You're right, because today, if you look at what's happening in Kashmir, in all honesty, as someone who has pretty much on and off lived in India, I don't think I have any right to speak about it or write about it. And the mic has to be passed on to people who are living through that experience. Because there's no one else in the country who has experienced what they're experiencing at the moment. These random submission calls, which essentially use tragedy as a door, I think they they don't really help, they harm. The other part of it is also that just because a person lives in Nigeria or India or Ethiopia or Philippines doesn't mean that they only want to talk about trauma or they only want to write about trauma or that if I'm from India, the content of my poetry should only be sandalwood and mangoes and saris and bindis and chicken curry. You know, I live with clinical depression. I write about my struggle with antidepressants. I write about um, the work that I do with you know, survivors of assault or abuse. But I also write about other things in my life. Um, and it's almost like those photography exhibitions that we see outside, um, which equate India with, you know, kids on the streets begging. It's not the only reality of my lived experience. And so it's also harmful when we constantly tug at people to go deeper into their trauma because we want content out of it, which is exactly why I don't trust most institutions. I'm not averse to publishing with them simply because I feel like you should um, should have some guerrilla tactics to infiltrate. Infiltrate, dethrone, 
that's a good strategy. But at the same time, I don't trust them because if you look at it historically, it's always when something bad happens in that other part of the world, which is uncivilized, that that part of the world becomes interesting. And that's, that's critical to preserving intergenerational trauma, to passing it on from one to the other, to the other, to the other, saying that you will be defined by the trauma you've experienced, not by any other part of your life. So your literature you produce, um, your writing, your art should be defined by the trauma that you experience. Right. Well, I want. I did want to ask you about this because I did uh, read one of your collections, uh, Bone Tongue, and you you talk a lot, and a lot of that is, I guess, in a way, reckoning with, you know, those inherited traumas or in mental health. And I just wanted to ask, like, you know, how, like, how how do you try and engage with that, like? in a healthy manner because without that sort of, I guess, re-traumatizing yourself. Cause it is, I do feel like a lot of, I do see a lot of poets. I feel like who are, who are doing that, unfortunately. I think people end up doing that. And I see that here as well, particularly within the spoken word community in India, where, you know, people think that in order to create something of value, it has to be rooted in tragedy or it has to be rooted in suffering. And I think there needs to be, you know, an understanding collective understanding that that's not a fact but that's that's also i think i sound mean when i say this but i blame i blame that on american publishing which glamorizes this talk show uh, agenda based conversation as opposed to just letting people have space to communicate and speak about whatever they want to speak about you know um for me my depression for me is almost like a companion and my approach to understanding it is very different today, which is not essentially, I'm trained to understand it medically, but I also, un, I also understand it on a spiritual or an existential level. It's, it's almost like a shadow. So I can't shrug it, I engage with it. And I don't write about depression, but I write through it. It's a lens that's there. Um, I can't completely get rid of it. I think people have to to read outside of compulsive trauma centered literature that is being produced and read about other people's experiences with similar things you know um, I remember you know Iraq, Iraqi poet and journalist Sadi Youssef in one of his interviews he's talking about it and, he, and it was so matter of fact because he said I stopped writing because of all that I was going through and then I started writing and it didn't seem like he had to make it dramatic or he had to um, place it on a pedestal. It was a very interesting way of creating a bridge from one part of his life to the other. And I think that's essential. Um, I think read more widely. You know, reading 10 books you should read, that, that's going to change the landscape of poetry forever do more research, you know, that's important. And I don't think people do that enough. No, I, I, I totally agree that um, people really, really don't do that enough. And I think like, oh, were you going to say something? No, I'm just listening. <laughs> Sorry. I just wanted, I didn't want to interrupt. Um, like, for me, one of the things you referenced in your Queen's Mob 
essay queen oh my god queen mobs essay um was uh, mm -hmm. the the mm -hmm. iron moon anthology of uh, chinese worker poetry and like one of the things that struck me reading some of those poems is mm, like oftentimes it seems like there was an alienation with the the experiences of you know the various factory or construction experiences that these poets had gone through mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. there's it's like reading that it's such it's so dissonant with a lot of the you know trauma-based poetry that you read where mm -hmm. there is mm -hmm. such like an investment in it it's just it really is striking how how like i guess how um, dominant that sort of mode of thinking has become here when it's when they're just very clearly other alternatives other ways to do it you're very right and that's that's essentially i think that particular collection in itself could be a good starting point for a lot of people because I'm I'm very invested in that sort of writing, personally, because it doesn't glamorize or fetishize. I think, for me, one of the pivotal moments of my life was transitioning into a sort of Fanonian psychoanalysis when I was studying. And I, I always remember, it's a very simple line, but it's a very accurate line, that the oppressed will always believe the worst about themselves. So if I'm constantly told that what you create is of value only if it is rooted in your pain, even though that is a fact on some level, because there is so much pain that it needs a release. But at the same time, when you look, when you read the collection uh, that you're referring to, you you see a certain kind of dry humor in it, and you see a certain kind of um, back and forth. There is a there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that expression. It is not written for um, the gaze essentially. It is not written for a poetry prize. It's not written for a mainstream publisher. It is not written for a book award. It is written, again, in a very Fanonian sense, because people couldn't breathe if they couldn't get it out of their system, because literally there was no other option. You know. So the guy I was talking about earlier, Anuj, who won the Sahitya Academy uh, Prize, ironically, what he's written, he, he's a he lives in, in this small town in Northeast India and he writes about fracking and he writes about how, um, you know, he saw trees being carried in the back of trucks. He writes about those things because it's like a form of journaling for him. He's not actively seeking anything beyond that. And again, I'm not a hundred percent trusting in the word authenticity but i think there is an element of authenticity to that i don't think it's people's fault that they end up writing about trauma the way it has become so i don't know it's, it's, it's almost it's culturally hegemonic i'd say so I, I certainly don't blame anyone for doing that it, right it, it, it's it's because it's um it's a way of it means it's a way of production essentially that you've been conditioned to believe that if you don't produce it like this in this much quantity, then it's not worth anything. A lot of people are fighting that today in today's world. A lot of people are questioning self-worth in today's world. You know, writing is not outside of life. You know, people talk about writing life. I don't comprehend it. I might be silly for saying that because again, like I always say, I'm not entrenched in writing or creative writing academia. I'm essentially a neuropsychologist who just happens to write, has always written all her life. I think 
that's the challenge, you know. Pe- you take people and you put them in these boxes and then we blame people for being in boxes. You know. To believe that's the only reality you have because there's nothing outside of it. And it's a dark box and darkness seems very expansive. So you believe that everything outside of this is also dark. It's as simple as that. And I think when people stop essentializing the idea of achievement and hierarchy i'm a poet on this level how to get to a poet of that level maybe people will be able to um honor their struggles in a in a more compassionate or authentic way yeah that what you what you were just saying uh, reminded me of two things you know Oh, I just want to say too. It's been about an hour. I don't want to take mm-hmm. up too much of your time. Um, mm-hmm. So let, let me know if it's it's going too long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, um, I'm fine. But, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I just want just wanted to make sure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, what you were just saying reminded me of um, the poet I just had on up from some dirt uh, was talking about how, mm-hmm. you know, he he essentially started writing just because he was he started writing poetry just by he was taking notes essentially on like some you know like history and philosophy mm-hmm. type books he was reading and then mm-hmm. one day someone came along and like looked over his shoulder basically and was like oh are you writing poetry and he was mm-hmm. like oh i've never mm-hmm. never really thought about it that way i guess i i guess i am mm-hmm. and that's and that's how mm-hmm. he um ended up there mm-hmm. but i also just wanted to mm-hmm. do, wanted to ask about fanon too since you brought him up like there's a couple lines in the in the queen queen mobs piece you wrote mm-hmm. that reminded me of, of fanon like for instance you wrote poetry is how we organize our spells our escape away from these mm-hmm. flightless bodies and so i guess mm-hmm. like you know like is, is fanon someone like you look to i guess for like how we should maybe relate to poetry i think largely not just poetry but um just a general understanding of uh, my place in society you know because poetry is um poetry is an outcome of that i think you know, it's sort of a navigation tool at times. So for me, Fanonian psychoanalysis was important because A, up to that point, psychology, if you study psychology anywhere in this world, it's populated with white voices. You lose yourself in that. Most of the trials are conducted on white bodies. Um, you very rarely come across people of color there. And so... I'm not saying it's ideal or perfect, but it's important because his presence and his writing, uh, particularly The Wretched of the Earth, which I read when I was really young, did have an impact. Because I struggle with something as simple as the language in which I communicate daily, which is English, because this is not my language. Because I don't speak some of the languages which are ancestrally my language. And that's, that's the kind of struggle as a poet, which is very difficult to interpret or translate for someone else who's not going through this struggle. You know, I mean, I haven't, there were periods in time where I didn't write for a very long time because it was frustrating for me to imagine that I couldn't think in a Romani language or I couldn't think in Urdu. I had to think in English and then translate it. And when you sit with that thought, it's very traumatic, essentially. Because we're seeing the disappearance of that language right now. And somewhere I feel like I'm responsible for it as well. 
So for me, reading the Wretched of the Earth was very important. It's a form of echolocation of sorts. It became very important. Um, the reason it became important, yeah, the, the same reason that Audrey Lord became important, because even when we speak against whiteness, we end up centering it. And Fanon essentially doesn't care about whiteness at all on some level. So that's why it became important for me. And I think it's important for anyone whose, ex whose ancestry has experienced colonization to be aware of um, his work, essentially. Because there are so many things, right? There's always, there was always a conflict growing up about how I was perceived versus how other people who looked like me were perceived. Because I was one of the better ones, right? You get the right kind of education. You get whatever is supposed to be the right kind of education. You belong to a particular level of society. Um, but it takes a minute, a fraction of a second at an airport for all of that to just crumble and to, for you to be made very aware of what is your position, what is your location in this world. I think that's why it was important to read and absorb a lot of what he's talking about because he talks about it all the time. I, I, all these things, and this is why I have a tough time introducing myself to people basis my material placement in the world saying I'm a psychologist, I'm a writer, because I know for a fact that, a, that, that an, at an American airport or at a European airport, um, all of that is immaterial. I can be embarrassed, harassed, insulted, taken aside for security checks for no reason, despite all of those things still being a part of my identity. Because in that moment, I'm just a name and a skin color and a lineage. One of the biggest ironies of the world is that India was colonized for as long as it was, as, as it was colonized. Today, most of us speak English. Today, I have written books in English, right? And I would assume that I can communicate fairly well in it. But if I have to apply to an American university for a fellowship or to a European university, not European, but UK, um, I still have to sit through such a basic English language proficiency test. I mean, think about it. That's the continuation of colonization. We're going to come there. We're going to colonize you, take over your mother tongue, impose ours. And then after we leave, if you ever have to come to study where we are, you have to prove proficiency in a language that was basically beaten into my people. And to understand these things, that's where Fanor became, becomes important, because these are the things that are addressed in his work. Well, right, and I guess this is a good time to ask, I wanted to make sure I asked this question, was, um, like, so what's your experience been like, you know, in the publishing world, trying to publish your poetry, given what you just said? I haven't, I mean, I'm ambivalent about it because I've, I've been published or I've, I've, you know, I've been a part of the publishing, env publishing environment since I was about 18 or so, and that's a long time. Um, it's very mixed because I feel like there are times when I speak to, you know, American or British editors and publishers who want to publish my work and they're extra careful almost like handling me with kid gloves 
And then, of course, I have had the joy of waking up to we've accepted your poetry. Oh, you're from India. We didn't know you knew so many words. I've had those kind of emails also. Oh my God, haha, you speak English so well. And I just feel like, okay, well, yeah, I do speak English because I was colonized by the British Empire. What do you think? So it's a mixed bag. Um, I just feel more comfortable when my work is in the hands of another person of color. You know, if it's, it's a black or a brown editor, I just feel a lot more comfortable. So I've, as I've gotten older, I've just been a little uh, more inclined towards sending work or responding to solicitation calls from other people who possibly have gone through similar lives as myself. And I just feel a little unsafe when the work is in the hands of a white, an all-white masthead. Because people don't understand a lot of things. A lot, also because a lot of my writing has, um, you know, my native languages where I don't explain the words. And that is always a bone of contention where people want. And I've had, I've pulled things back, you know, like I've pulled out of publishing with certain people, certain, um, you know, established places because they wanted me to explain what the Urdu word meant or what this, the Katalan word meant. And I didn't want to. My editors have been, for, for all my books, the, the venues that I've published with have been excellent. I've never had a problem. Um, I think I'm a little bit partial towards um, the publishing space in the UK than I'm in America, because I've just had a better experience there. Always yeah. been easier to work with British editors or English editors. Um, than it has been with American editors. Yeah, I mean, that's even the case for some American poets. Like, I remember, I think, Jay Dodd's first book, or maybe... Um, yeah, I think Jay Dodd's first book was published in the UK, and, and there's there's a tradition of, like, um, like radical American poets having to publish in the mm -hmm. UK because the American press is, like, frankly, such such shit. It's It's... Difficult to, um, on some level, it's difficult to explain because, like I said, the, it's not always that it's a negative experience in in the sense that they are uh, they're derogatory, but just that a lot of times even the overprotectiveness is pointless because it makes you feel like an infant. And there is a certain way. I'm going to offend so many people when I say there's a certain way in which even when I am in America, especially when I am in certain cities, which are neoliberal cities, the way of communication is so infantilizing. It's like they're talking to, to a child or to a baby. And I think that's what I resent the most. That's why it's easier for me to work with, I'm not generalizing on any level, but I'm just from my experience, it's been 100% easier to work with English or British editors, uh, whether it's conferences, whether it's literary festivals, whether it's publishing, all of that. It's just been a little easier. Yeah, I, I could see why that, that might be the case. Um, I just wanted to ask too, like, um, is there anything that you've, like, you want to talk about that we, that we didn't touch on? Um, I, I'm, my, I'm only half awake even now, so I'm just thinking <laughs> of it. But I think it 
pretty much covers most of what uh, we set out to speak about. So, so yeah, I think we've covered quite a bit. Can't think of anything else unless you have something you want to ask me. Uh, no, I just uh, thank you so much for for coming on. Thank me. Oh yeah, no, really, anytime. Um, I I meant to say this too at the before we were started. Like you know, I don't I. If you want to talk again, or I don't want to cram everything into one recording, so I'm definitely willing to talk again if you if you want to. Could be a two part thing when I'm more awake and more eloquent. Oh, for sure, and I want to get a mm -hmm. yeah, and I also want to talk more about your poetry specifically. Sure, sounds good. Yeah. So, well, again, thank you for doing this.